thank you DJ and Alan and Kim and Crystal for helping us to praise the Lord uh, this morning and for Paul leading us in considering that wonderful chapter in the book of Revelation. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of, book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 3. This is the last chapter in the book of Nahum as we have been looking at this short prophecy. This is why Nahum is included in what are called the minor prophets as a, as a short book. And we'll read from Nahum chapter 3 and I'll read the whole chapter This is God's Word. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations Look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes? that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. 
O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we have read this awesome and awful passage of Scripture, as we are stunned by it, we see that there is great wickedness and evil in the world. We see the consequences of Adam's sin. We see it all around us. We grieve even this morning, Lord, of the tragedy and the wickedness and the evil of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. We pray, Lord, even for the people of Mariupol in Ukraine and in the cities throughout the Ukraine. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them mercy and that there would be peace in that country. We pray for the Taylor missionary family in Poland. We, we ask, Lord, that you would help them as they receive so many refugees from Ukraine into Poland and their resources, even as, a, as missionaries, their resources are stretched as they seek to help all these people fleeing. We pray for pastors in Ukraine, Baptist pastors, who are seeking to shepherd their flocks even as their people are fleeing or are scattered, are stuck in shelters, are trying to escape, trying to get on buses, trying to leave in cars, trying to maneuver around troop movements. Lord, we pray that you have mercy upon your people there. Lord, we see such evil, and we pray that the designs of evil, wicked men would be thwarted, would be stopped. But we do know, Lord, that you will hold all in the balance and you will judge. Lord, we thank you that as we think even of these horrible, terrifying events in our world, that you have not left us without hope, even as we've been singing this morning. We thank you that we can rejoice in the goodness of the gospel and that there is hope beyond the tragedies of this life, hope beyond the grave, hope in Jesus Christ and the life to come. Lord, we thank you that in this church the ministry of the gospel goes forth. We thank you as well for just the the encouragement and delight that we have in seeing more and more young people joining our youth group as they seek to hear about the Word of God and as they have fun together, as they learn from Jared Harfield, as he serves there, as he teaches them, as he watches over them, as he disciples them. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to hand on the gospel to these young people, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Lord, we pray for all those who are single in our church, who are not married and who are looking to be married. Lord, it is such a lonely, distance type of time that we're in. We pray, Lord, that you would help those that are seeking to be married, that they could find a spouse, 
that they would be able to walk together, walk with the Lord, seeking the Lord together. We do pray that there be many wonderful, glorious Christian marriages that come, come about in our church. And Lord, for all those who are hurting, those that are confused, those that have sinned and have been sinned against, Lord, we pray that even this morning, even in the goodness and severity of the living God, we pray that they would know comfort, that they would be drawn to you, that they would seek your face and know your care and compassion, your undeserved favor. Lord, I pray that you would make it so, even as we seek to heed your awesome word. We pray now as we hear your word that your word would weigh upon us, but that it would weigh upon us with the gravity of the glory of God and that then we would in turn find relief not in anything else except Jesus Christ alone. Draw us to the Savior now, we pray, for we ask this in his name. Amen. There's a quote from the late Howard Hendricks, and he, I've used it many times, and he said, comparison is carnality. If you've been around me, you've heard me repeat that. Comparison is carnality. When we compare ourselves with others, invariably, we'll distort the comparison in the ways that we prefer. So if we're feeling sad, we'll look at other people and then we'll think that they're prettier or they're smarter or they're richer or in church they're godlier or they're wiser than ourselves. If we're feeling confident, of course, we look at others and we think, well, they're fatter or they're dumber or they're poorer or they're less godly than ourselves. We all do it, right? We all do it. Sometimes the the comparisons are helpful because we can become so distorted in our self-understanding that we can assume that we are one way when in fact we are another way. You know, of course, against the darkness, the light shines bright. Or as Jesus said, in Matthew 6:23, if then the li- the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So it's good be- it's good to kind of step back sometimes. Step back or be forced by life events sometimes, be forced to step back to look at ourselves. Not with that deceiving illusion of normal comparisons, but instead to be forced to see how far we have moved and how different we are from what we have perceived of ourselves. And so in some cases, comparison is not carnal, but essential. And it is the comparison of ourselves with the standard of God's Word. The most essential comparison is when God lines us up against His own character and His own commands. Or as Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word 
is truth. So whether it's for presidents or nations or personal individuals, God lines up the comparisons. And so that's how then God can say to Jerusalem or to Nineveh or to Calgary, He he can look at them and He can say, Are you better than other cities? Calgary? Really? Are you better? God can say to you and to me, Are you better than Vladimir Putin? Or Vladimir Zelensky? Or Kim Kardashian or Katy Perry or whoever you want to compare yourself to? Are you better than them? When our hypocrisy is exposed, as Nineveh's was, then the only recourse is to lay ourselves bare before God and repent and say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. When we do that, then we'll forsake all other comparisons because we will trust in the incomparable righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's my hope this morning, is that we can, that we can as we're going to read this, as we go through this chapter, this confrontational comparison that Nahum brings in this prophecy, my hope is that we will be pushed, pushed to Jesus and His righteousness alone, even as we have this prophecy of Nahum against a global superpower, Nineveh of Assyria. Well, how do you describe a city? How do you describe a city? In Calgary, what do we say? Well, Calgary is Cowtown, Stampede City. I don't know. I've got another name. Uh, New York is the Big Apple. But what if you had a city that was built entirely on cruelty? What would you call it? Well, you would probably call it the bloody city. And that's exactly what it says. Woe to the bloody city in verse 1. Nineveh was the bloody city. And it is the bloody city because they reveled in blood spilling. The bloodier the better. Torturous human butchery. And the archaeology confirms it. I'm not going to go into all the archaeology. We've been going through that in the series. You can go to the British Museum website and you can see the stone relief displays of the butchery of the Ninevite Assyrians. Artistic butchery. It's, but it's important to remember that, that, it, that we actually can come out and say Nineveh is the bloody city. Why can we say it? Well, because God is a moral God and He can make these declarations. And, and we, we have to remember this. Pastor Josh alluded to it when he was talking about the Crusades in the Sunday school hour. We can read about God's endorsement of cataclysmic judgment on entire nations and people groups. You know, you go to first-year religion class at University of Calgary, and the morality of God's judgment on the Canaanites 
or here his judgment on Nineveh, that's called into question, isn't it? And that they, at those kind of classes, God's viewed as a moral monster to destroy a generation of these people groups. But when you see their wickedness, you realize that only God was able to stop them. God had to stop them. God had to cut them short. And so as we read in verse 3, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. If you've been watching as I have, you hear about the horrors of Mariupol, Ukraine. You see the soon starvation of more cities. Everybody's been quick to watch on the internet at a safe distance these wars and cheer, cheer for your team, as it were. But when you see people starving, are you prepared for that? The horrors of war, dead in the streets, who are untouched, unmoved. But then we can see that a regime that does this to civilians is a bloody regime. But since irony is a theme in the prophecy of Nahum, we just have to add one more thing, just another point about this phrase, the bloody city. Later in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 24.6, God calls Jerusalem the bloody city that is judged by the Babylonian invasion, leading to the deportation of Jews like Daniel and his friends. We're going to come back to Jerusalem a little later on. Now, I have to say, when you look at verses 4 through 6, the descriptions of Nineveh and what's going to happen that we've read are what your IT department and HR department might call NSFW. Like, not safe for work. Uh, The descriptions of this stereotypical covenant breaker who cheats and lies, verse 4, graceful, or the Hebrew could be rendered seductive, and of deadly charms, or again, the Hebrew could be rendered as full of sorcery, who betrays nations with her zenunim, her harlotry, and the peoples with her charms or her sorcery. This is what the nation of Assyria and the capital city of Nineveh was doing to other nation-states. And you start seeing then how wicked, fallen empires, how, how they operate in the world and have vast influence, but are kind of rotten throughout. It's an amazing description of a nation. And, and so today we, we hesitate. We hesitate to speak of a nation-state or a nationality, or a people group in such terms. We we recoil from it. But God, God can call it as He sees it. And the shamelessness of Nineveh will be exposed for what it is in verses 5 and 6. And and if it sounds harsh, you just have to remember that throughout the book of Nahum, irony is the key. It's ironic. And this is how Nineveh treated the nations 
When he says, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle in verse 6. That's how Nineveh treated all the nations around them. See, you have to remember that Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 2, he said, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right? We got all kinds of judgment we're throwing around, aren't we? Oh yeah, well, let me tell you my opinion on this. I'm going to have my judgment. I'll give you, render my judgment on this situation. Yeah, well, that's going to come back around to you. Nineveh, Nineveh is being measured here. What about Calgary? What, how does God view Calgary when he measures Calgary? Calgary making all of its wide judgments. Or you. Or you. Or, or me. Lots of opinions. Lots of hot takes. How does that come back around to you? Now the Bible speaks in this language about the covenant breaker. This woman. This metaphorical woman applied. The, the covenant breaker in the book of Proverbs. Described as the Zarah. The strange woman. Or in the book of Revelation. In chapters 17 through 19. 17, 18, 19. She is the Megales Pornes. The great harlot. And it's described here in these same terms of Nineveh. Without God's initiative of grace in the gospel, each one of us would be consigned to the judgment of this collective metaphorical description. That's where we are. See, this is the thing. It's easy, even if you're a Christian believer, it's easy to think that God saved you because you were so lovable. But He didn't save you because you were lovable or because you were civil or because you were nice or because you had the right background. He saved you despite the fact that you deserve damnation. We can forget that. Now maybe there's people here. They're, you know, they're already, they're chafing at what the Bible says. They're chafing at this sermon. They're chafing at what I'm saying. And so then the soundtrack for that chafing is, you know, the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil. Should we have sympathy for the wicked? What about justice? You know, even if we quickly want to think of God's grace and we want to go to God's grace, we can't make it cheap grace. Is that what we believe in, is cheap grace? No, no. If it's grace, if it's undeserved favor, it is so in the face of deserved judgment. So God then says to wicked Nineveh, He says in verse 7, All who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? There's no comfort for Nineveh. No sympathy for the devil. 
But in a roundabout way, this actually is comforting to Judah. Judah are God's people. Because they know that God doesn't ignore their pain. He doesn't ignore their pain. He doesn't ignore the injustices that they feel that they have been put through. As Psalm 68 says, God is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That is God in his holy habitation. So Revelation 18.20 says, speaking of the fall of Babylon, the great harlot, that gives rise to this comforting relief to God's people. It says in Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice over her. And, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. It's for you against her. So there's no comfort for Nineveh. Now, the comfort, their comfort was offered, remember. Their comfort was offered in Jonah's preaching. And that's why Jonah and Nahum go together. There was this offer. That's the theme of the whole book of Jonah. Here is this offer of the preaching of comfort and salvation that Jonah brings, and Jonah didn't want to do it, right? Then he got swallowed by the fish, right? But that's it. He, didn't want, he, he wanted them to be nuked by God. And God's like, no, I'm going to show compassion to these sinners. But now that window of opportunity has been closed. They, they aren't turning to the Lord anymore. They, they are not interested in the God of Israel. They're going to go their own way. They're going to keep on being the bloody city. The window is closing. And so in a striking passage then, the judgment on the bloody city is meant to be a different kind of comfort to the victims in Judah. God doesn't ignore the victim's cry. And if you've ever been victimized, then you know what it is to have someone, somewhere, vindicate you in your, vic- in your victimhood. And that's what God does for the downtrodden of Judah. Those who have seen as the Assyrians had come and surrounded Jerusalem and taken over all these Judean cities and towns and saw all the horrors of what the Assyrians have done. And they're like, how long, O Lord? Well, he's saying, yeah, well, it's coming. And it came. This is the prediction, but it came true. But then, moving on then, I just got to, you know, as I, as I think about these, these Old Testament prophecies, when I, when I preach on them, people are always, they're always quite appreciative of, of the historical backgrounds that, that I can bring, and, and they fill out the picture of what the Bible says. And, and so this has been good work for me to do going into Nam. Think about Assyria, think about Judah, think about that time. Look at the archaeology. 
Um, so it's been very helpful for me. I would just say as well, just, just to, to ask you to be praying for me and for uh, some of the guys here and, and different uh, pastors in training who are coming to the Simeon Trust Workshop this week. We're going to be going through Jonah and Nam, and now you know why I'm preaching through Nam as t- two birds, one stone. But actually, I, I've been amazed at how relevant, how relevant these texts are for us. I, I don't think they could be more, more relevant for our own day. But in verses 8 through 13, as we go on to my next point, we're introduced to a key historical event it's historical, and it helps us nail down the date of the prophecy because Nahum, you see in verse 8, he refers to, the, to the, the Egyptian city of Thebes. Thebes. Now it's you know, further down, further south on the Nile River. Thebes had been the Egyptian capital when the Cushite or, or Nubian dynasty They had ruled from what we would call northern Sudan. They actually came up and they ruled all of Egypt. So that's that's they had they had Thebes as their capital. And so Thebes uh, in 663 BC, they were sacked, they were conquered. And who did the conquering? Irony, the Assyrians. The Assyrians come all the way down into central Egypt and they had sacked this nearly impregnable city known as Thebes. How do we know about this? Well, of course, the Assyrians, they loved to pump their own tires. So they, would, they, talked, they wrote all kinds of stuff about how they whooped Thebes and destroyed it. Ashurbanipal, the, the king, he was flowery as is always in describing his invasion, Thebes, he said, was smashed as if by a floodstorm. It's always dramatic with the Assyrians in when they're doing cruel things. But then with this background, then we can read verse 8 and we can make sense of it. Are you better, again, speaking to Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? that sat by the Nile with water around her rampart of sea and water wall. Cush was her strength. That's you know, more south of Egypt, that kingdom below Egypt that had taken over. Egypt too, and that without limit, put in the Libyan, so even northern Africa were her helpers. Here, the big point is comparison. It's comparison. Comparing Thebes to Nineveh. Comparing someone else in all of their appeal, in all of their status, comparing that to yourself and saying, well, I'm smarter, I'm funnier, I'm skinnier, I'm godlier, I'm warmer, I'm wiser, or whatever. Are you better than? And you can just ask yourself. You Fill in the blank. You know what you compare yourself to. Are you better than blank? Well, the rhetorical answer that God's getting at here is, no, no, you aren't better. You aren't better than them. Nineveh deserved judgment just like Thebes did. God used Assyria 
to judge Egypt, God would use Babylon to judge Assyria. Now, we can jump quickly and make very personal applications, and I I think we can, but we shouldn't ignore the clarity of this text. There is such a thing from this, there is such a thing as national sin. We hardly admit it today. You say, oh, you can't can't say that because everybody's a diverse country. No, there is such a thing as a national sin, as civic sin. Glorious empires have collapsed. Empires were, what's the phrase, too big to fail, and they failed. Verse 10 outlines what happened to Thebes. The few noblemen who escaped the genocide, they were taken by Assyria into captivity. The Assyrian records note, they're, you know, always note these things, took them naked and in chains back to Assyria. But verses 11, and 13, 11 through 13 indicate that the, just what the destruction of Nineveh will look like. And for us now, it's, it's remarkable that we are in a wartime in Ukraine and we're seeing these images of what war is. And we see the scenes of chaos in Ukraine when people are under siege. They scramble. They stumble to get away. They aren't drunk, but they look like it because they're so desperate trying to get out of there. Soldiers then fall. Courage wanes. And what used to be strong defenses are now porous. Have you ever, this thinking personally, have you experienced a loss or a disaster or a wreck that you can't seem to stop? You watch the disaster unfold and you feel powerless to stop it? Well, of course, this is what happens when God brings judgment. There is no force in the universe who can withstand Him. So it can be quite presumptuous then to compare ourselves with others and think, well, I'm better, I'm prettier, I'm smarter, I'm better than somebody else. We can, as the saying goes, we can tempt fate. But you can't test God and get away with it. You you can't. You can't test God and get away with it. People can't. Nations can't. And just speaking a tiny political comment here, is there any good in this nation that we deserve? Or is it the case that our whole nation is testing God, shaking our fist at God? Why do we expect any good in this land? If there is any good, you do know it is undeserved. It is a gracious good from a God who is patient and long-suffering. You think, why hasn't God wiped Canada off the map? Is it because we're nice? We're a nice nation? 
Well, no. It's because he gives common grace, common mercy, holding back his judgment. But this then leads then to this final section in verses 14 through 19. And you think about, think about a scenario that you have experienced, a situation where people have sinned against you or, you know, where people have sinned against others. They've hurt them. They've wrecked their lives. They've left destruction. Well, then the natural response of those people who have been victimized or who have suffered the consequences, the natural consequences, they can actually feel a little bit happy when the oppressor is struck down, when the person doing the hurting is stopped. See, there's a German word that is often used in English for this. It's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, if you want. It's, it's rejoicing in the calamities of others. I think every farmer I know uh, has schadenfreude. They rejoice in the calamities of others. Oh, I didn't get hail. That guy got hail, you know, on his crop. You know, my cows aren't out. That guy's cows are out. Well, look at that. Have a chuckle. Rejoice in the calamities of others. Now, normally this can, this can be bad. It can be vindictive. It can be vengeful. The writer Naomi Wolf, she captures this idea talking about the old pop star Madonna. Most of you don't know who that is, but anyways, uh, that's how old I am. Uh, Naomi Wolf said, since Madonna, as a pop star, is positioned as always cooler than thou, we're all primed for schadenfreude if something in her fabulous life goes amiss. You're just like, oh, see somebody crashing. We delight in her calamities. It, it, this is the sense of what drives the gossip sites and, and the memes of social media, where you where you, you get a chuckle out of somebody crashing and burning. Well, in verses 14 to 18, there is calamity in Nineveh. And, and it calls for, God calls Nineveh to do whatever it likes to strengthen itself. But it's not going to work. Building more walls won't work. Relying on their financial networks won't work. The merchants are going to fly away like bugs. Leaders, are, they're just going to bounce away and they're gone like grasshoppers. We all know what it's like to see the failures of leadership, failures of politicians, failures of public officials, failures of pastors. Those who are absent in the midst of chaos. Well, this would be the case for Nineveh. As Nahum then nears the end of the prophecy, he summarizes what will happen. He says, there in verse 18, he says, Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Well, we know the principle is the same, isn't it? Whether for churches or for nations. When the shepherds are asleep, the people do what? They scatter. They scatter. They all, there's no more unity. They scatter. This is what would happen 
to Assyria, to Nineveh. But Nahum ends the prophecy with this stinging indictment. He says then, in verse 19, he says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Is this schadenfreude? Is this rejoicing at the calamity of others? I think this is a bit different. This is a bit different. When someone has been destructive, there is relief and peace when their destructive ways have ended. There's peace that way. And so there is no comfort for Nineveh in this prophecy. There's no comfort for them. Certainly, there could be those who repented and believed in the gospel. They had heard the gospel preaching before in Jonah. There is a mention of the gospel in chapter 1. But the aim of this prophecy is not comfort for Nineveh. But there is comfort for Judah. And this is where we have to remember. Where do we find the prophecy of Nahum? It's written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew Bible. It's it's not in Assyrian. It's written in Hebrew. It is for Judah. It is for God's people to read. And then they will read it, they will hear it, and they will be reminded that God judges justly. And they'll be reminded there is a moral order in the universe. They'll be reminded there is one clear judge. They'll be reminded that nihilism is false, that atheism is false, that Buddhism is false, that Hinduism is false. You see, the destruction, the destruction of Nineveh happened then in 612 B.C., after this prophecy. So God says this is going to happen, and in 612 B.C. it happens. Historical event, Nineveh falls. It's predicted in detail here. It came to pass. And this is one of the reasons why we trust the Bible. Because God speaks in advance about these things, and He is powerful enough to make it so. Now, with what remains in this terrifying chapter, and, and this maybe this terrifying sermon, I just want to make then some actually real direct applications for us and take a little bit of time to dig in. And how do you, how do you take then this message of judgment on the Assyrians, how does it apply to us and offer comfort to us? Well, the first thing, I want to note then by way of application is how we should look at these judgment passages, the the cursing psalms or, or the apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation. Well, first I want you to consider that only Jesus allows us to offer comfort to the destructive while maintaining God's justice against sinful destruction. He's, there's only, he's the only one who can offer comfort 
to destroyers like you and me. Oh, you don't think you're a destroyer? (laughs) You don't think you've wrecked anything in your life or anything in anybody else's life? He's the only one to offer comfort to the destroyer. All other beliefs out there, all other belief system, they either rejoice in evil or they offer no hope to those who are stuck in cycles of violence, cycles of sexual immorality, or cycles of self-absorbed narcissism. They offer no hope. But you know what Jesus, in offering this comfort, you know what Jesus did? He wept. Jesus wept. He wept over not Nineveh, the bloody city, but over Jerusalem, the bloody city. Jesus, in Luke 19, verse 41, in the triumphal entry, when he comes into Jerusalem, what we'll celebrate on Palm Sunday, when he drew near to the city, Luke 19, verse 41, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Are you getting that there are windows of opportunity, windows of time, windows of comfort, windows of mercy, Jerusalem had a window. Jesus was there preaching in Jerusalem. And people didn't repent. They didn't believe in him. And so he mourns over them. He weeps for Jerusalem, the bloody city. Or as he said in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus looked upon Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that receives the prophets? No, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of this sermon, we're going to sing a new song called Jerusalem. And the lion says, See him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, now they cry for murder. Is there comfort for sinners in Jerusalem or Nineveh or Calgary? Only if they Look upon him whom they have pierced, John 19, 37. Only if they can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. See, our sin, your sin, my sin, our sin put 
Jesus on the cross. We pierced Him. By our sin, our hearts have echoed the ancient cry, Crucify Him! Bring the judgment on Him. I don't want it. Bring it on Him. I'm going to escape because I think I'm better than Him. I'm better than others. I don't need God. Am I better than they? So when we are confronted with the wrath and justice of God, we should then consider the deceptiveness of sin. And this is a good gut check. I've got three elements where the deception of sin marked the Ninevites, but also may be marking you and me. The first is this. It's saying, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. You can say it. I can say it. I'm, I'm not like that. You, you, you can pick your comparison. I'm not like that. I'm not like, you know, the status government workers, or I'm not like the jerk truckers, or I'm not like the rule followers, or I'm not like the arrogant rebels. We've had two years of working on this. Well, I'm not like that. Full of ourselves. I'm not like that. I'm not like her. I'm not like him. They're bad. I am not. That is the deception of sin with false comparisons. All you have to do is, how do I measure up with God? Oh, I'm not like that. God doesn't care. You do not meet His standard. You are under judgment. James says you are guilty of all the law if you break it in one part. You are a Ninevite. Unless, of course, you're running to Jesus. The deception of sin says, I'm not like that. Or secondly, we're not like them. We're not like them. You know, you, you see, oh well, Jerusalem killed the prophets and her own Messiah. But we're not like them. You know, the Aztecs, my house, one of my boys is studying the Aztecs. The Aztecs slaughtered 20,000 Human sacrifices per year. 20,000 slaughtered in ritual sacrifice. Some estimated as high as 100 or 200,000. But 20,000 is what all agree on at least. But you know what the abortion statistics are fairly consistently in Canada? About 100,000 a year. And we look at the Aztecs and say, oh, we're not like them. We're not a bloody outfit like they are. <laughs> are we better than them? What is stopping God? Ask yourself this. What is stopping God from removing all of the comfort and all of the security in Canada? There is nothing in us stopping God from taking all of those things away. Except, of course, his own mercy. He's so merciful. And we hardly act like he is. He's so merciful to us. 
Of course, he will provide comfort to, comfort to the church in its suffering, but he has given no guarantee to Canada. No guarantee. So we can't say, oh, well, we're not like them. But thirdly, I would never do that. I would never do that. We all say it. Oh, you look at somebody, I would never do that. We think, for example, you know, this is, this is where everybody goes. We, we think, well, well, I could never be a Nazi or a Nazi supporter. But did you know that Heinrich Himmler, you know, with the SS, he wrote love letters to his wife. You know, he, he, he listened to classical music. He had a dog. He took holidays. And yet, he was the architect of the Holocaust. Oh, I, I would never do that. Yeah, maybe if, if, if God showed his mercy to you, yeah, you won't. But if you didn't have God's mercy, you would go right there. You don't know how dark your heart is apart from God's grace. Monthly, it seems, the evangelical church is rocked by revelations that celebrity leaders, they seem to be able to bless Jesus on Sunday and then curse him on Monday with their immorality. Why did Jesus speak the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you ever wonder why? Because he knew that people could kid themselves, saying, I would never do that. I would never murder. I'd never commit adultery. I'd never steal. So then Jesus spoke of murder in the heart, adultery in the heart. You might say, I would never do that. Jesus says, you've done it already in your heart. Admit it. But what about you then? Today you've heard about wrath and judgment. Maybe God's been showing you things, ugly things about yourself. These words from John Bunyan then are for you. He said, Let not thy lusts and folly drive thee beyond the door of mercy, since it is not locked nor bolted against thee. Manasseh was a bad man, and Mary Magdalene a bad woman. To say nothing of the thief on the cross or of the murderers of Christ, yet they obtained mercy. Christ willingly received them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That Christ willingly receives you and offers you mercy if you simply look to him. Bunyan wrote those words, in a sermon called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And it was on Luke 24, 47, Jesus saying that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And when Jesus said, begin at Jerusalem, well then Bunyan said, begin at Jerusalem. The biggest sinners. Is that you today? The biggest sinners must first be offered mercy. They must, I say, have the cream of the gospel offered unto them. The cream of the gospel is for the biggest sinner. The biggest sinner is the Jerusalem 
sinner. And so today, my hope is for every soul here that you will turn from being a Ninevite sinner, damned, to a Jerusalem sinner, saved. Because that is where we need to be, looking to Jesus Christ for mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please help us now to look to Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Help us to look, even as Jerusalem sinners, let us be saved. Help us to flee all of our Ninevite empires of dirt and to find refuge in Jesus Christ alone. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we're going to sing Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's a new song that DJ will introduce to us. Jerusalem. And it is a song for sinners like us. Please rise. If you don't want to be a Ninevite sinner anymore, but a Jerusalem sinner saved, then I urge you, don't don't play any more games. The time for games is over. Flee to Christ. Come talk to one of the elders today. Don't leave here and push this aside. But for all of those who do look to Christ, they are Jerusalem sinners saved. Paul's speaking of himself, but it applies to everyone. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's not done with you yet. And so we say, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.